0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive
1: between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
2: It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like
0: me right now.
2: I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And joining us once again are our senior Hollywood editor, Hilary Busis hello happy hanukkah happy hanukkah or as uh, Smokey robinson would say chinooka did everyone else see this cameo that
0: <laughs> it's was going great our- <laughs> it's
3: just so good so sweet
1: you know
0: what it's it i saw it once and then i kept laughing for eight days
1: <laughs> <laughs> the true power of uh, viral cameos um so we want to talk about some movies that are coming out Right now, available for you to watch, which is always exciting and uh, a good, solid amount of news. This happened last week, too. It seems that the wheels keep turning in Hollywood, including uh, announcement of the Sundance Film Festival lineup and a gazillion Disney movies that are coming in the future. And then in the back half of this episode, our colleague Chris Rosen is going to talk to Kaylee Cuoco, the star of The Flight Attendant, which uh, for my money seems to be the breakout TV series of December, at least, if not the entire fall. Um, And that finale airs this week. And we'll talk a little bit about that, too. Uh, but first to start, um, the Sundance Film Festival has announced the lineup for January's festival, which for me personally is very exciting because it's virtual. I will get to go to Sundance for the first time in eight years. As usual, it's a list of a bunch of titles that maybe don't mean anything to you yet because they are made by people who will be the breakout directors and stars of next year, which is what always happens with Sundance. Um, but having taken a look at the lineup, uh, is anything striking you guys that you're especially excited to, um, to start talking about in January when Sundance kicks off, uh, mostly
3: virtually? I don't know if excited, but curious. Um, There's a movie called John and the Hole. Yes. And the description is this. A non-traditional coming of age story set in the unsettling reality of John, a kid who holds his family captive in a hole in the ground. And that's it. That's the the whole description. So uh, intrigued about that with uh, Michael C. Hall and Jennifer Ely and Teza Formiga. Um, But I think that's representative of what the Sundance lineup, when it's announced every year, kind of always looks like. Kind of like you said, Katie, it's like, what the hell is this? Some of it seems like a 30 Rock joke about a movie that would be at Sundance. Yes. And we just don't really know what's going to be the good and what's going to be the bad until, you know, we see it. Which I feel like is kind of different from fall film festivals where it feels a little bit more certain in some senses what's going to like play well, you know. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of the fun of it. And yes, like you said, Katie, it's more people will get to partake in that, uh, which should make for a more lively, interesting conversation.
2: Yeah,
1: it's interesting the way they're doing it. There's, like, there's going to be a virtual screening platform uh, much the way there was for Toronto um, back in September. Uh, and then there's also going to be this satellite screens program where they've partnered with all of these various, like, indie theaters and festivals around the country to, like, have outdoor programming to some degree, which I think is is impressive. Like, it, it represents this kind of commitment to spreading the wealth and not just being like, well, if you have a login to the platform, like, I think TIFF was not super accessible. Um, mm. But as we talked about, there's been all these regional festivals throughout the fall um, that give people a way to see things. It sounds like Sun Sundance is kind of taking the best of both of those formats.
3: Yeah, because a, a festival like Sundance, like Telluride, take place in these, you know, locales, especially Telluride, that are they're, they're hard to get to and then expensive to stay in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you see people at the festival, especially in the second half, who are usually older white, you know, moneyed people who are just taking a week off of whatever they do or just part of their retirement to go see a bunch of movies, which is nice. It's nice that they're doing it, but it's pre- it feels pretty exclusionary. And the festival has done a lot of work to try to correct that problem to some extent while also they need the money that these people spend on badges yeah to keep the festival running so it's a tricky balance and I think that like hopefully this will be a one-off virtual year I think there is still something to be gained by being there in person but yeah I mean I think it'll hope maybe introduce a new audience to the festival and then there will be that much more almost demand for the festival to be a little bit more accessible going forward
1: yeah that's true it's
0: nice too that you'll be able to recreate the experience of going to Sundance by simply going outside, waiting for forty-five minutes, then coming in. <laughs> yeah, you have know, to you know. ride a bus
1: <laughs> in a big
4: circle to get yeah. back to your house too.
3: Yeah, I'm just gonna go fall down uh, outside of my house. <laughs> yeah, slip on some ice.
4: Flip <laughs> on yeah. some ice. Buy buy yourself at least one piece of new knitwear, uh,
3: Richard. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'll wait outside on like a steep hill, trying to get into a bad party i mean there are no parties happening but That's i could like, maybe pretend there was or just drink put like on a, some a,
1: loud music
0: inside yeah. a building you'll never go inside
3: yeah, yeah. well with, and, and not know where to put my heavy coat <laughs>
0: yeah you can like rename your house
1: the like official the chase sapphire uh, I, I lounge think good, yes
0: exactly the chase sapphire <laughs> like richard's That's, living room okay.
1: yeah um well about the movies which is what we're really here for there is a movie called Together Together, which includes in the cast Tig Notaro and Julio Torres, which I find and very interesting. And Patty intriguing. Harrison. It's like oh. a very
3: hip comedy lineup.
1: Yeah. And Ed Helms, who, yeah. you know, has a long comedy pedigree. And then the other one that I wanted to mention was uh, it says it's directed and written by Rebecca Hall. I don't know if that's the same Rebecca Hall who is is. like, okay, that is fascinating. So it's a movie called Passing about two African-American women who can pass as white, who choose to live on opposite sides of the color line in 1929 New York. Uh, The stars are Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. That's and Andre Holland is in it as well. It's a. Fascinating combination of people and story, and that Richard, like you were saying, like that sounds like something that also could have shown up on the Toronto lineup, which mm-hmm. happens at Sundance once in a while, like something that seems more classically prestigious. Um, I'm, I will be fascinated to see that.
3: Yeah, and and um, I think Rebecca Hall, I think her mother is biracial, and so she's bringing some. You know, known experience, I guess, to this project, because I think otherwise people might be like, why is Rebecca Hall making that movie? But yeah, that, that will be definitely an interesting one. I think also um, Jared Carmichael, who, you know, late of the uh, the Carmichael show, which was a great multi-cam sitcom that ran, I think, for two seasons a couple yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he has a movie that he uh, is directing. He didn't write it, uh, but, but he stars in it. Christopher Abbott, Tiffany Haddish, J.B. Smooth. So like, that could be something fun. But and Henry
1: maybe, but, Winkler, you just left him off oh, the Oh, excuse me, Henry <laughs> Winkler, recent Emmy winner.
3: So that could be really funny or it could be kind of a mix of things like The Carmichael Show was. Again, he didn't write this movie. But stuff like that that seems to have potential isn't actually always what pops at the festivals. Again, like I think Toronto is more predictable. I think Sundance is less. And, and in years past when I've made my schedule, it's been a kind of conflict between do I go see the thing with the big stars because like maybe that's better for coverage, or do I go see this tiny thing that probably will be better. And I think that if we have a virtual festival, that won't have to make that many kind of Sophie's choices. You can maybe watch both, which is which is a nice possibility to consider.
1: You don't have to calculate bus route time into how you can fit the the screenings into your day. You
3: cannot make it from the Eccles to the library in twenty minutes. I've tried. It cannot be done.
1: (laughs) Um, two other things I wanted to mention, because the documentaries at Sundance are often huge highlights of it. And like this year, Dick Johnson is Dead premiered there and Miss Americana. Um, there is a documentary about Rita Moreno, who I cannot imagine a Hollywood person more worthy of a documentary about her. Um, and then there's one directed by Questlove uh, about the Harlem Cultural Festival, which happened the same summer as Woodstock and has been kind of uh, comparatively way under discussed. And um, both of those look fascinating.
0: And there's also something that looks like it could kind of slot into the uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor slot. Um, It's a documentary about Sesame Street and (laughs) the title is Street Gang, which I think is pretty funny.
1: (laughs) That is funny.
3: One interesting dimension of Sundance this year is that the movies that premiere there will be Oscar eligible for this year's Oscars.
2: Yes, that's true.
3: they they if they have any kind of digital release beyond the festival they will have technically been a movie that opened within the eligibility window. Yeah. Um, And to that end, like Robin Wright has a film that she directed called land and she stars in it about a woman going out into the American wilderness. Uh, So maybe a little shades of nomad land. I don't know. But like, I, I know that that movie has been mentioned to me by certain folks in the industry as like a movie that could actually have some Oscar legs, for this year's campaign, which is not what, the, because the the Sundance is usually, like, the, like, reset. It's like, okay, we're still mired in all the Oscar stuff from last year, but, like, here's a whole bunch of new things. But yeah. this year, they're included in that uh, that lineup.
1: Yeah, and that's fascinating, too, because I think, as we have said for a while, maybe not recently, that, like, the Oscar race does feel fuzzy in a way, and that there's not, like, the giant studio... Heavy hitters that we might get in another year, which makes something like Nomadland suddenly feel like the front runner, even though it's a very unusual kind of Oscar contender. So the opportunity for kind of late breaking narrative changers is is really there's a lot of potential for that. Um, well, would you guys like to talk about a another giant list of titles of things that uh, I think will probably wind up being pretty different from the Sundance selections?
3: <laughs> Please.
1: Joanna, I think I was kind of tormenting you last week when I was like, I wasn't really like paying attention during the Disney investor call. And like I was like that's cooking. The, that's the rudest thing you've
4: ever said to me, <laughs> <I know>. Katie.
1: <laughs> because you and Anthony Bresencan and Hillary as well and lots of people were kind of busting their asses to cover this massive Disney investor call that happened last week with such a huge list of things in development that um, I don't think anyone could honestly could like keep track of all of them at once. But Joanna, for you, what were like the big takeaways of what we need to know about what Disney
4: has planned? A couple months ago, I think it was an August call, that, you know, Disney said, we're, we're taking our focuses off of feature films or, or we're at least reprioritizing streaming, whether that was a reaction to what was going on with movie theaters and COVID or a reaction to the already shifting market and wanting to bolster up Disney Plus. I don't know, but people might have brushed that off as to corporate speak. But then when we got this slate of, of programming from Marvel and Lucasfilm and Disney Animation and Pixar, um, it's really clear how heavily they are going to be relying on Disney Plus as a platform for their stuff going forward and how if... Disney Plus did not seem like a priority purchase to you, the viewer at home who's already juggling your HBO Max subscription and your Hulu subscription and your Peacock subscription and your whatever. Uh, they're really trying to make this musty TV by promising that they're going to have something new and exciting debut on the platform every week. Is it going to be a new Marvel show every week? No, but kind of close. So overall, the bigger picture... I was trying to, like, suss out the Marvel plan and what what they're doing. Because they are still releasing some films. They're not putting Black Widow on Disney Plus the way that a lot of people thought they would uh, to follow, you know, in Wonder Woman's uh, footsteps over on HBO Max. We talked about the controversy, of course, of uh, Warner Brothers putting all their films on HBO Max. And Disney's like, no, we're still releasing theatrically in 2021. That's still something we're doing. But when they seems... set a date for Black Widow, I'm sorry. Are they still just yeah, waiting? Yeah, it's in May. It's okay. in
1: May. That seems... So, that seems...
4: Possible, yeah. But what seems to be true of their plan, of their upcoming slate, is that if it's an established character, an established franchise, it's going to be a movie. I mean, there's some things that are already in production, like Shang-Chi and stuff like that, but, you know, Thor... Love and Thunder is going to be a movie. Doctor Strange and the, Madness of the Multiverse of Madness is going to be a movie. Captain Marvel 2 is going to be a movie. Black Widow is going to be a movie in theaters. But when it comes to introducing their new generation of heroes, that is going to happen on Disney+. And I think it's a really smart sort of hybrid strategy that they're doing, like... Whether the market supports like something like the original Thor movie, the original Captain America movie, where audience had to go in like fresh not knowing Evans from Hemsworth and, and absorb these new heroes, Disney has made the decision that introducing those new heroes will be more valuable to them if it's on this platform, right? They announced a ton of new uh, Disney Plus series. And the main takeaway from what kind of series they're trying to launch there... Seems to be that they're trying to put together something called the Young Avengers. Are you guys asleep yet? Um,
3: (laughs) (laughs) I woke up a little bit at Hemsworth and then, sorry, drifted away
4: again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Young Avengers are a lineup of like teen fighters there's America Chavez uh, Riri there's there's just like a whole bunch of people who like you know they announced an Ironheart series for example Uh, and and Riri who's a comic book character who is the lead of Ironheart is you know a young African American woman and she kind of takes over the the Iron Man armor so it's just like all these people you know they they, we already knew that Haley Steinfeld was going to be playing uh, Kate Bishop who's like a young female version of Hawkeye basically and and she's going to be launched on a Hawkeye show with Jeremy Renner. And so it's like these younger, more diverse, more female uh centric versions of these uh white male superheroes that we've come to know. They're introducing those folks on Disney+. And I wouldn't be surprised. Obviously, the Miss Marvel show is already in the works. And I wouldn't be surprised if they then do a Young Avengers team-up pulling together the strings of all these shows including probably, like, Letitia rides Shuri from Black Panther, etc., etc. Maybe even Tom Holland's Peter Parker into a crossover movie. You know what I mean? So, like, Mm -hmm. build the interest up on Disney+, and then give us a big Young Avengers movie in theaters. And, you know, these are all characters we will be familiar with now. Um, So
1: you have said multiple times that, the Marvel model, you know, what made Endgame so powerful is basically that they took the TV format of having yeah. a bunch of episodes leading up to the finale. So now it's just going to be more literal in that it's TV technically that is building all these characters. And then the, the team up is the movie.
4: Right. And, you know, Kevin Feige, I'm sure, made plenty of TV critics heads uh, explode when he described uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, um, the upcoming Anthony Mackie, Sebastian Stan show as a six hour movie. Something he said that I could hear like Twitter grind its gears on, um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it is actually much closer to what comic books do, right? Which is like put out these little issues and then do these big crossover events. So I think it's actually hewing closer to the original medium, which is kind of interesting. Um, the other thing that Marvel's doing that I think is interesting is is Marvel has this policy, unofficial policy that I like to call uh, we never made any mistakes uh, policy, and it's this. <laughs> they, they, I, you, We see it really a lot in Endgame when they take one of their weakest movies, which is Thor The Dark World, which is the one that everyone kind of agrees is the wobbliest, and they make it a central part of Endgame in terms of like the time travel plot. So all of a sudden, that wobbly, their wobbliest movie now becomes essential to their larger narrative, right? And so you're seeing this uh, a bit with their TV show decisions, they're bringing in like old stories or old narratives, and just sort of making it all seem like airtight and essential. And uh, wait, or, like the uh, like the Netflix TV shows that all got canceled, or what are we talking about? Well, yeah. So for example. We could we can talk about Spider Man in a quick second if you guys have a patience for that. But for example, Daredevil, there's there's a rumor that Charlie Cox's Daredevil is going to be in the new Spider Man movie, which everyone is going to be in apparently. And we could talk about that. But Kevin Feige also winkingly at the camera implied that he's going to be in the new She Hulk TV show, which is going to be starring Tatiana Maslany. That that's going to be their like lawyer show or something like that, and they're going to bring in Charlie Cox as Daredevil from the Netflix thing. And it, it it's very Kevin Feige to like cherry pick the thing that he thinks is the most valuable from something and bring it forward and so he's gonna be like no it's not that the netflix experiment was a mistake and i i wouldn't say it was a mistake sitting here but he's like we're gonna legitimize it and bring it under our tent by bringing in charlie cox's daredevil and daredevil's a huge character that they don't want to like leave on the table you know what i mean so they're just gonna like bring him in or the spider-man plan that they have where they're bringing in The rumor is they're bringing in all these old spider man like Andrew Garfield or (laughs) Tobey Maguire. You know, like, let's make sure people know that the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man wasn't a mistake or this wasn't a mistake. Like, it was all intentional. It's all essential. It's all building to this great big web, sticky web that we've created here. Um, I promise to start
0: paying attention once Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner show up again.
4: (laughs) Absolutely. Electra, look out for her. No, and Spider-Man and and Daredevil are very connected in the comics, so it makes sense to sort of like bring it all together. The Spider-Man thing was interesting because they couldn't announce the Spider-Man casting stuff at the Disney call because it's a Sony Co-Pro. So I imagine that Sony wouldn't let them announce it there because it's like their news, right? But uh, Don't you assume Tobey Maguire is also out there somewhere demanding
1: like eight suitcases of cash to do this? Well,
4: that's yeah, that's true. But I think, yeah, so maybe. But they leaked it. It leaked all week. So it was already in the water. So Kevin Feige just had to say the words Spider-Man our our third Spider-Man movie and everyone had the news of the week already in their head so it wasn't part of their official announcement but it was like part I mean it was like it was hinted at on Kimmel which is on ABC which is owned by Disney I was like this is a oh my god you're going so (laughs) deep okay let me me pull (laughs) up I feel a little bit like uh, this is your like Taylor
1: Swift conspiracy theorizing like the the equivalent of it for the Marvel (laughs) Universe except Taylor Swift really does have like eight new surprise albums coming in the case of Marvel (laughs) it all
0: leads to something and there's 31 pieces of her brain and there are 31 Marvel
4: (laughs) shows I have a powerpoint I can show you Um, (laughs) yeah and then uh, Star Wars is doing some similar stuff I would say the move of pulling Hayden Christensen into the Obi-Wan show is another like we don't make mistakes moment you know and and they're doing their Mandalorian spinoffs and all that sort of stuff so I can answer any of those questions but it seems like I might have burnt you out on comic book stuff and then lastly I guess I'll just say that uh, animation wise Disney animation wise we seem to be exiting the era of and and we were already well on our way there but really exiting the era of let us export white Disney princess narratives around the world and rather import other narratives to America and make our brand even stronger globally um Mm. if that makes sense from a journalistic point of view, and not that anyone listening at home cares, the most punishing thing I've ever sat through in my life, and I've been to like <laughs> an all-day marathon at Hall H and Comic-Con or D23, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, you know, obviously this was pitched not for the consumer necessarily, but for the investor, and Disney already had like massive payoffs. There's their their stock is soaring and stuff like that. But uh Kevin Feige was like micro uh, micro machine man talking at one point, and then he just went. And we're doing the Fantastic Four uh, directed by John Watts. Bye. And I was just <laughs> like, which is huge because that's a fruition of the Fox deal. But I was just yeah. like, this is a huge moment. And he's just like, and bye, my time is up. And yeah. um, you know, it was a wild, it was a wild ride. So.
3: And the company had just laid off thirty two thousand people. Which right. right. like, they had. Exactly. They had. exactly. Right. Yeah.
4: Exactly. So and not and, just um and but i mean it's a, it's a it's a vicious little cycle right because they need to do this to get their stock back up so that they can pay their employees right but then I can understand if you're a laid off employee that this looks like opulence that, you know, money funneling in one direction, you've lost your job. I would say some other things that Disney's done, like refurbish the sign um, on Disney World in Orlando is more of a slap in the face, too. It's like park employees that it just cut. Stuff like that. This seems to me to be more of like a, you know, our our company is nosediving and we need to assure people that we're not just about to fall apart, you know? Yeah, I
1: mean, I I keep thinking about the contrast between this and the HBO Max announcement, which we talked about last week, and like HBO Max was trying to, like, shore up their company the same way that Disney is, but... Warner Brothers was a somewhat more risk embracing company than Disney has become. Like, you know, and this was the thing that Christopher Nolan talked about. Like, these are filmmakers who got in business with these people who support visions. And now here they are throwing everything to streaming. So, in some ways, like the Disney stuff of them having 8,000 Disney Plus projects, it feels like a little bit less of a surprise or a slap in the face. Like, Disney hasn't released a theatrical movie that isn't like a guaranteed four quadrant blockbuster in years. Um, and it didn't seem like they were going to be anytime soon. Is-, is that the read you guys have that like this all makes a little bit more sense than all the Warner hand- hand wringing has
0: i mean it does and it doesn't i do kind of wonder about the strategy of you know if i i maybe speaking out of turn here i obviously do not have as deep a knowledge of this kind of stuff as you do joanna but like my read on star wars at least is that people were sick of star wars and the last movie didn't do as well as expected not just because it wasn't as good as people wanted it to be but also just because they oversaturated the market and now the response to that is we're going to do 25 Star Wars TV shows and each of them is going to be 10 episodes long. I don't know. It it feels like there have to be diminishing returns at some point, but maybe that's just wishful thinking from somebody who doesn't want to just be watching recycled versions of the same thing over and over and over again. Well, yeah, I mean,
3: and they're sort of damned by success in that regard, you know, because I would say there's no way that you could have another Mandalorian. That show is really good because it was it's made in this very, you know, artisanal uh, sort of crafted way. You can't you can't mass produce that. But then it's
0: special because it's singular. Right.
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. But then someone at Disney might say, well, but most of the Marvel movies are pretty good. So, and we churned those out and they have a point, you know, so it's a little bit tricky to kind of, I mean, a television series is different than, than a movie series, like, because there are contained stories that then, you know, there's a year or so in between, you know, versus a TV series, which is more continuously running, but they have pulled something like it off in the recent past. So I understand why they would think they could do it again, much as Warner Brothers figured they could do it with Fantastic Beasts after the success of Harry Potter.
1: Yeah. Joanne, I feel like you've been the driver of the "Make Star Wars Rare Again" train. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't, I don't know if you feel like this is a real reversal of that.
4: Well, I mean, there are the All Ten movie. All Ten shows are not going to come out in the same year, right? they they've. This is a multi-year plan, and there's some shows that sure, I have more confidence in, in than others. Like I think the Ahsoka Tano show will probably be uh, fantastic because of how much Lucasfilm adores that character. Uh, you've got two Mandalorian spinoffs. The High Republic one is the one that I'm a little worried about because that takes place in an era that we've not experienced really in mainstream Star Wars. Like a spinoff of The Mandalorian is easier for an audience to follow, right? Then let's go to The High Republic, uh, the Golden Era, the Jedi. (laughs) And and like, uh, it could be amazing. But that's going to be that's going to have fewer hooks and audiences to to follow it. Uh, a Lando TV series, I think, is actually a great idea because um, or potentially great because I think that. Basically, they're, they're trying to salvage some of their film plans that they had to scrap. And they had planned, like, if Han Solo, if Solo had done better, Lando would have gotten his own movie, right? So now they're like, okay, I guess it's a TV show. I mean, but that's kind of what The Mandalorian is. They were supposed to be a Boba Fett movie. And they've incorporated some of that Boba Fett planning that they did for a long time into the plotting of The Mandalorian. So, you know, I think they're just trying to kind of repurpose. I, I agree. That there was intense Star Wars burnout, make Star Wars rare again. All of that is stuff that I that I cling to, but I also think that Kathy Kennedy, as much as I admire a lot of what she's built, um, I think there was some issue with her as as sort of the sole guiding voice at the top of Lucasfilm, and um, from everything we've heard, there are some other folks having a bit more um, guiding input. And uh, you know, I think Kathy is still the final say on things, but I think that there are some people in the room that I really trust to be able to potentially craft this.
1: We'll be talking about this Disney stuff for ages and ages and ages. I guess my final thing is that I've now learned to misinvent movies. So the notion of like having some of them still on the calendar, especially after the Warner Brothers announcement, like even though there's gonna be a billion Marvel things on Disney Plus, like I still feel like Black Widow is still gonna feel like a big deal and I'm I'm glad for that.
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, the same thing is true of Eternals. Um, yeah. And and Shang- I'm really glad that Shang-Chi is still going to be like, a, you know, a film. The one question I have, and I think it's still a question mark in some people's minds, is there was an implication during the whole thing that perhaps all future Fox Searchlight properties were going to go on the streaming platform i think it wasn't confirmed it was just sort of implied as a possibility and so that you know that seems to be maybe more in the wheelhouse of the audience of this podcast to be worried or or you know mourn perhaps briefly um the loss Well, it's a tricky thing because
3: depending on what the academy does in the future they would have to still release it theatrically and maybe that could be just a short qualifying run Mm. But or maybe they're just going to be developing separate things for Hulu and still, you know, doing their regular releases. I don't know. But hearing hearing like Searchlight will be Hulu now. That's a little bit scary. Yeah. (laughs) I just don't know if that's what they meant. You know?
0: Yeah. I for one welcome our new insect overlords.
5: (laughs) (laughs) You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper. With people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. terms apply.
1: All right. Well, speaking of movies that uh, still exist as events, um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and The Father, I think, are like kind of the two big Oscar-y movies that are out this week. I believe The Father—it's a Sony Pictures classic release. I think that's going to be theatrical only for now. I don't know if anybody—these It's these movies that aren't obviously from, like, Netflix are a little bit harder to keep track of, but it is out somewhere. Richard, you talked about The Father way back at Sundance, mm. and you kind of put your chips on Anthony Hopkins uh, winning his second Oscar for it. Um I really want people to go see The Father, even though it's in many ways a stone-cold bummer. Um, Do we want to throw out any further endorsements for seeing it if you have the opportunity to?
3: Yeah, if Michael Haneke's Best Picture nominee, Amour, just wasn't quite enough of the horror (laughs) of degenerative uh, disease, uh, here comes The Father. Uh, No, I mean, they are similar because they're about the same thing, but I think what the director, Florian Zeller, does with The Father, it's not better than Amour, it's just different. You know, he's adapting his stage play and... I can't imagine how the show is staged because it's the, the movie is all about this character's confusion. Uh, it's very much from his perspective is as, as reality shifts within his home, which is should be a pretty familiar place. Yeah. Um, and the technique that Zeller uses as a first time filmmaker to pull that off is is pretty remarkable. Uh, and it would maybe be enough. But then there's also Hopkins, who is so fully selling um, this guy's decline. That it just becomes, you know, I I read the synopsis, you know, talking about Sundance lineups. I read that, you know, about this time last year and I said, OK, that seems like pretty, you know, stayed Oscar bait. Weird that it's at Sundance. Didn't feel like yeah. a Sundance movie. It still maybe doesn't entirely, but but there is something really, I think, innovative about the way that the the film is built. And so it really transcends uh, what, you know, could have sounded like a pretty boring not boring, but familiar drama about yeah. you know an elderly guy.
1: Yeah, Hillary, you yeah,
0: saw yeah, the I father's yeah, fall, right? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, I I agree with Richard. I was not expecting, I was not expecting to be surprised by it, and I certainly wasn't expecting to be moved by it. But I was uh, on both counts. I I think it's really clever the way that it embodies the subject in a new. In a new way that it kind of, yeah, but by shifting focus so that it's directly from the uh, character's perspective who is suffering from dementia, um, I think, yeah, it gives kind of new insight into what that experience might be like for somebody who's in the thick of it. Um, and Anthony Hopkins is really great. He made me cry. I don't cry at movies. Um, so that is like the strongest But you're strongest a parent now. It, it rewires your brain, unfortunately. You, know, you I, won't recognize yourself. I will yourself. say, I don't want, yeah, I don't want to spoil anything. But the th- part that made me cry did have to do with a parent-child relationship. So I am, yeah, now a sucker for that. Um, <laughs> maybe it's not just Anthony Hopkins. but Yeah, we give, we give him
1: credit where it's due. <laughs> um, but it made me think of so many movies that are just like, I'm going to put you in the perspective of the character by swirling the camera around and making all the colors go crazy and the sound drops out and the father accomplishes this. And like I think we should keep it kind of vague because the surprises of it, I think, are a big part of relating to the character. But it just uses casting and acting. Totally. Like, and it's
0: not it's not gimmicky at no. all, which is great.
1: And it, 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 there are some elements where you can see how it's a play. And then some, like Richard said, where like the set changes or something happen in a way that make you wonder how they did it. But it's all really elegant the way that it works and gets you so much into um, this character's headspace that's so devastating to be in.
0: The The comparison that came up for me, I think, was Still Alice, which is another movie that's about similar material and that I think came across as a lot more melodramatic. I mean, as good as Julianne Moore, Oscar winner, was in that role. Mm-hmm. I think that this movie is a lot more, is a lot better constructed. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not to you know, sort of cheapen it with, like, a genre association, but it it creates a sense of mystery. I mean, it is kind of a mystery to try to figure out what actually is going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the sort of, without spoiling anything, the sort of sad conclusion is that we in the audience, of course, can walk away from the film having a clearer picture of, like, what was real, but, of course, this character can't. And so it's it's sort of an open-ended mystery for him, um, which, you know, is really where, you know the movie leaves you feeling like you said, Katie stone cold bummed. Um, but you know, you, I think that people, you know, I know a few people, friend of the podcast, Bobby finger, like will never watch it because the movies about that particular subject matter are just too hard to watch. And I totally get that. I mean, my mom, her mother died from Alzheimer's horrible, horrible disease. I would never recommend her to see it, you know? Um, so, you know, uh, approach it with care, you know, <laughs> be mindful of yourself and what, you know, what triggers you might have. But it um, if you if you think you can stomach it, it, it really is uh, a was it was a really big surprise out of Sundance this year. And I think, you know, I don't think Hopkins is going to win anymore necessarily, but um, he will definitely be nominated as might Olivia Coleman.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to I was gonna transition because it's interesting that The Father and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom are out the same week. Ma Rainey being on Netflix this week um, because I was all with you on the Anthony Hopkins for Best Actor prediction you made in, in January, Richard, until I saw Ma Rainey's Black Bottom uh, in Chadwick Boseman, who I, before I saw it, had kind of thought was a supporting role, I guess, because the title is Ma Rainey and therefore... That made sense. Um, But it's very much a lead performance and um, he's amazing in this movie. It's something that I think would have been a big deal um, awards-wise even if he had not died this summer. But uh, the movie is... I think I mean the movie is also adapted from a play. I think it has its theatrical background, maybe even more visible than in The Father. Um but the performances in it are pretty unimpeachable. And uh it's also a little bit of a bummer, but maybe not as much as The Father. Um who else wants to weigh in on Ma Rainey? Well
3: well yeah, I mean I just I just wrote something about it. I'm reviewing it for the site, but I I was writing a, a kind of essay about like the um you know, the 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 sort of best picture frontrunners uh for our special issue and I think the thing about it being a play is like, but it kind of works in this context because it's so much about the performances that like the simple settings and aesthetics like really, you know, just let those performances shine. And and Bozeman in particular, I mean, there's the simple fact that he's dead. But also the fact that this character he's playing is this young guy, really coming into the full bloom of his artistry, like mm-hmm. as a trumpet player, like really ready to take on the world to a to a dangerous extent. I mean, you know, he he he's he's reckless in, in that in that kind of ambition, but he's just bouncing around these rooms, just so eager to like just devour every you know opportunity he can, and and it's a, it's a beautiful performance in that way. But to know you know metacontextually that like that that Chadwick Boseman's, uh, you know, artistic life ended so suddenly. Like, that, for for anyone, anyway, for people who aren't aware that he was sick, like, it, it has that sort of unintended tragic element to it. But I don't think that, you know, distracts from his performance, which is, you know, at root just, like, a great performance that I would have, that I loved watching on film and would have loved to see on stage.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that you're especially struck watching it, like, knowing the backstory, knowing how sick he was when he was filming, like, by how completely he's embodying this character, how lively he is, like, I, I, it's really remarkable to see how fully he committed, despite like what's happening in his personal life and how difficult it must've been. Like, uh, not to, not that you necessarily need that piece of backstory to appreciate the role, like you were saying, Katie, but mm-hmm. I do think that that adds an extra important layer.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, he became so famous as um, as Black Panther, who I think was acknowledged as, like, he's not the most interesting person in Black Panther. Like, Michael B. Jordan's uh, character is kind of the big standout. He almost has, like, the bigger emotional arc. Um, but it made me think of something like Get On Up, but he was in when kind of he was in this, like, biopic period where he's playing James Brown with a similar kind of live wire character. I just think if you had gotten used to Chadwick Boseman as being, like, noble hero, like, there's so much, so many other layers in Ma Rainey to this, like, really complicated kind of self-destructive character. Character and getting to see that, like be reminded of that element of his talent was um, was fascinating to watch this.
0: And to a similar degree, uh, Viola Davis, I feel like we like she is she is a supporting character more so than you would think if you just saw the title of the movie. But she's yeah. also great in this movie, also playing against type as this blousy diva. Um, I think that she also has a reputation for playing like very noble, very stoic, uh, very like long suffering characters. And Ma Rainey is a complete, uh, divergence from that. And she's having a great time. And I, I think she's really great in it as well. The whole
3: cast is, I mean, Glenn Turman and Coleman Domingo as two of the other, you know, bandmates, you know, they're just so plugged into August Wilson's language, which is, you know, especially for this play, you know, this play is to, people don't know is part of this 10-play cycle that August Wilson wrote um, about the black experience in America and each play takes place in a different decade of the 20th century um, that he finished just- most
0: of them are set in Pittsburgh that's I, right I, the oh, yeah. there you go. I need to drop that fact in August Wilson our most uh, famous son <laughs> Yeah.
3: Um, this one is not though Hillary come on um,
0: <laughs> and uh, perhaps uncoincidentally it's maybe the best known and uh, best loved of the cycle Yeah. we are we're like the, we're not the second
1: city we're like like the fifth or ninth city. But that's, that's crucial to the charm, right? You always have to have the chip on the shoulder.
3: Oh, of course. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, they just his writing just really gets showcased here. And I think, you know, again, that's a way that I would push back against people who would criticize the movie for feeling too much like a play. I think, you know, we have a lot of play adaptations coming this year, this movie, The Father, One Night in Miami. And I think they adapt to varying degrees of success. But, you know, this, this one does not feel trapped in a box like a lot of play adaptations do you know um i mean it's way more successful than the prom i think uh in, in that. Um,
1: man you had to bring it back up richard every week
3: <laughs> twitter keeps bringing it back up for me <laughs> <laughs> true
1: um yeah i mean comparing this to the prom is like the fact that they're both appearing on netflix a week apart i guess you can't avoid it but yes they were vastly different movies
0: and Ma Rainey, I, I, forgive me if this is wrong. I haven't actually seen or read the play. Actually, so I won't say it as fact, but I'll ask it as a question. Is the ending of the movie something that happens in the stage show? Like the very, very end? I don't want to spoil it. I don't know. Yes. It's really striking, yeah. It's super, it's a It's a really like, it's a great gut punch of an ending. Yeah.
3: I believe it does, but okay. I don't know. we'll maybe get a theater, a true theater expert on uh, to disprove us.
1: Yeah, ne- next week we are scolded <laughs> by theater experts. About the
3: ben Brantley joins us to tell us what we got
1: wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> um, but yeah, everyone everyone can watch Ma Rainey this weekend, uh, should watch Ma Rainey this weekend. And um, Hilary Andrews, I assume you agree with me that like of all the things we don't know about this year's Oscar race, Chadwick Boseman's posthumous Oscar seems like an inevitability and well-deserved.
0: Yeah. I think so. I'm
1: still here, and
4: I did see Ma Rainey. Oh, I'm sorry, Joanna.
1: (laughs) You were being so quiet. I thought you were just trying to be, like, all cool about it. What did you think of Ma Rainey, Joanna?
4: Oh, I loved it. Thanks for asking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Waiting for Joanna to be like, actually.
1: (laughs) Joanna, the theater expert, is going to tell us what we got wrong. Okay, back to your streaming platforms, this time over to Amazon. Uh, Hillary, you put on your reviewer cap last week, which I like as the editor of the section. Basically, when you like something enough, you get to be like, I'm going to write about it. I'm taking the prerogative. Uh, And you get to write about the wilds, the uh, teen girl, Lord of the Flies, but not quite. That is on Amazon Prime right now. Yes.
0: I'm not sure if I planted my flag there so much as I didn't think anybody else cared about the show. <laughs> and so therefore decided that I would write about it so that it was represented somewhere. Um, but yeah, I really liked it. Uh, so as as you said, Katie, it's a, a Lord of the Flies inspired narrative about a group of teenage girls who are in a plane crash on a tropical island. Um, well, it's it was filmed in new zealand so i guess that's not tropical but
1: uh yeah they definitely wear sweaters more than like they did on lost they seem very cold (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: they they have um a lot of uh comfy knitwear on this island um but yeah so it's it's one of those shows that's uh it's very predictable you're not going to really be surprised by a lot of it as you're watching it um there are eight different girls and each of them has a problem that they were facing at home and throughout the course of the season you learn more about each of their backstories it's it's very like clearly based on the lost blueprint um it doesn't do a ton to differentiate itself from that in terms of structure there's also a mystery on the island like are they there by accident there's some kind of grander conspiracy that slowly becomes uh, revealed throughout the course of the season um But I mean, as I as I wrote in the review, I think that that's sort of part of the charm of the series is that it is. It is clearly playing from an established formula, but I think that the execution is good. I think that the performances are good and that it's uh, it's got a good sense of pacing, which is something that you don't find a lot on streaming shows, especially. where they just tend to kind of drag. Um, But in this case, I think that the show earns its length that it keeps you interested and keeps meeting out answers at a steady clip. Um, And I mean, I don't know if it's just that I was starving for something new, but I watched
1: the entire thing very quickly. Um, So two thumbs up. Uh, I watched two episodes of The Wilds uh, knowing that we were going to talk about it. And I definitely, like, as someone who loved Lost and would, like, happily take a Lost knockoff, I, like, I don't mind it at all if someone's like, oh, we're just going to take this formula and make it about different people, make it about a different island mystery. Like, you you said that— It's Hillary, a good that, formula. Yeah, it's, like, kind of unbeatable. And I think they have a good cast here. I mean, it's a lot of people who I don't know, and also Helena Howard, who was in um, Madeline's Madeline last year. And, you know, you get a sense of, like, what each girl's story is. Like, you get to another episode, you're like, oh, good, we're never going to figure out what her deal is. Um, I think— Hillary and maybe Joanna also like when they start with like a like an angsty writer girl is the first one. You're like, ah, they made this for me. That was that was that's my that's (laughs) (laughs) who I would have been on this island. Although I would not say I would be bold enough to uh, hit on a older man writer, which is what her backstory is. Um, But yeah, I I, as I'm constantly feeling behind on like watching what I'm quote unquote supposed to. I haven't figured out if I will have it in me to finish this, but. It does seem exceedingly bingeable, like you said, Hillary. And the fact that you said the pace is good is a relief because I do know the feeling of like wanting to just to get to the end of something and feeling completely stuck in it as they just like try to pad out their episode run.
0: Yeah, this comparison only came to me more recently, but I think it's basically the melodramatic version of The Babysitters Club, which was yes. maybe my other my other favorite show of 2020 because I am 11 years
3: old. Uh, that just sold me, uh, as as did. Um, in your review, Hillary, you say that ending I should clarify is fully ridiculous. That also <laughs> sold. Like I need to know what that is now. Well, tease.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, don't don't thank me. Thank uh, thank the ladies of the wilds. Thank the nation of New Zealand. Yes. Well, we were always
4: grateful for them. Um, joining yeah. you watched some of the wild, right? I did. I watched the first two episodes, like you did, Katie, to make sure uh, that I had something to say. Um, yeah, it's uh, very Losty, very Lord of the Fliesy. It's, it is interesting. It's it's. The, this all-female Lord of the Flies concept is something that I feel like there's like four competing projects, uh, and this is the one that got here first, but there's also like Yellow Jackets over at Showtime and a couple others, a uh, feature film sort of concept, um, but I don't know if some of those will go away after uh, after this hit or whatever. But um, the thing that I like, because I was thinking of it from a Lost and J.J. And J. Abrams, um, who was involved with the pilot at least of Lost point of view something that J.J. does really well is like put a cast together and cast a show he knows how to cast a show he knows how to cast a movie like super well and um he's also fond of his art, his like boxed in archetypes and while I don't think this show is necessarily cast as well as a J.J. Abrams project will be like J.J. Abrams just has the magic of of being able to point a finger at an unknown and be like, yeah, and I wasn't like, there were none none of the young women, though they were all fine and great in this, did I go, oh my god, her, for, for sure. Um... This this show feels less archetypy and boxy. You know what I mean? Like there are girls there. You know, there's the athlete, there's the like smart one, there's the like um, antisocial one, there's the this that that. Like that's all there, but it's much muddier than I think you ordinarily see. It's much muddier than what you see in season one of Lost, and mm-hmm. um, and you don't just have to rely on information you learn in a backstory to muddy the 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 archetypes for you they're already muddied from the go and i like that because i think Oftentimes, especially when writing teenage girls, people get so unimaginative with creating um, multifaceted young women. And I think uh, this show, though, it's not, I you know, I wouldn't call it necessarily like high, high art, but I think in that way, it's done something a little bit more interesting than like A Pretty Little Liars or something like that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like the character who uh, is the most like straight out of the mold is like, Uh, Christian and Southern and blonde and pretty and a pageant queen. And yeah, and you see her and you're immediately like, oh, I bet her arc is going to be this. And you are right. Um, But everybody else is... Slightly more interesting. There are two Native American characters. There's this like Persian American princess who's also a violin prodigy. Like,
1: they, uh, they yeah, she's the one of... I'm waiting for. Like, they've been teasing her enough in the first episode. Like, she has like condoms in her suitcase and she got out her makeup box. You're like, all right, what do you, like, I know there's a twist. So, like, what's it gonna be?
4: I, I might yeah, keep watching br- for that. She brought a like
0: a bunch of lube on her like <laughs> women's, women's wellness retreat, <laughs> which also, is hilarious. Yeah.
4: But they also, like, the, the, the like blonde Southern Christian girl that you described, like, she's immediately someone i like you know what i mean huh. like as opposed to like you know a shannon on lost making me dislike her before i grudgingly like her do you know yeah. what i mean and so yeah, like she's the I, one
1: who's also like i'm gonna go get get things done and she's got like
4: mysteriously fake teeth and i don't know why yeah the fake teeth whatever <laughs> but like the you know she's like nice to other people you know it's just yeah. like she seems helpful and nice in a way that like uh doesn't seem like F- faux noxious uh southern Christianity or anything like that. Um
3: and just to clarify, and, this is a yeah. reality show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 They threw all yeah.
1: these they, so. they crashed all these
4: girls planes. <laughs> They're a lot of lawsuits. It's
3: <laughs> fascinating.
4: Well, but I do <laughs> several I mean, people
3: died to make this show.
4: It does go in in the in the flight attendant niche of like end of year programming that is pretty light on the palate. Uh and so like I'm I'm happy to watch it. And like when I was watching the first episode I had so many theories that I'm pretty sure are true given Hillary's description of like where you think it's going it's going and I was like but I still wanted like to talk to someone who was watching just the first episode with me so I could be like is it this and do you think it's this and were there drugs in the chocolate cake do you think (laughs) and like all sorts of stuff like that Um, and that's just that's like a fun space for your brain to be without anything like too heavy weighting it down the only thing that I will say feels like a little bit of a narrative cheat after like Lost and and some of its other uh, things is like there's a there's an interview structure that, oh, yeah, that's you very know, Yeah, trans- yeah. every girl gets to not only talk about her backstory, but like come up with symbols and connections and like all this <laughs> sort of stuff and, and psychoanalyze herself and all this sort of stuff like that. So that just feels like a little, uh, a little plotting, but uh, yeah, there's New a Island lot stuff. of gender yeah. studies
0: 101 um, in the yeah. show, but you've got to <laughs> remind yourself that it was made for people uh, who are younger than us and less yeah. steeped in that part of the culture. Um, and I like that this is a bit of a spoiler, but not really. The the villain of the show winds up being a female supremacist, which I think is kind of fun.
1: Yeah.
4: That, all uh, right.
0: I think that's all yeah,
1: All right, Joanna, this is going to be our holiday project. rights. Gonna...
4: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the run for revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture.
2: I am Fran Lebowitz. Um who should be the mayor of New York.
0: We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Very nice.
3: Nikki. Yes. It's been
4: really great Chill being in this beautiful pink lover. room. All right, Asha, can you hear us?
3: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
4: We can. We can.
3: All right, here we are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works.
5: Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK.
4: Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um AWOK and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi and I'm Chloe Mel. And we're the hosts of the Run Through Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us, it's AWOK. Listen and
0: subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Um, all right. Well, Joanna, you mentioned the flight attendant. And we should pivot to that because we want to share Chris's interview with Kaylee Cuoco. Yeah. Um, I have watched one episode of it. I do not want any of you to spoil this for me. Um, But it is ending this week. I know that the uh, screeners of the finale have gone out. I hear that it, it ends exactly the way you want it to. So uh, this is HBO Max's like first real original hit. Right. Like it worked.
4: Yeah. I would say so, yeah. Richard and I will be uh, wrapping it all up on still watching this week. So if you want to hear like a full breakdown of the finale and stuff like that, we will be talking about it over there. But yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't say the finale like blew me out of the water, but like it definitely wasn't like oh it all came down to this sort of thing. Yeah, um, not like I'm the undoing. Of...
1: Uh, no, these many weeks
4: ago. <clears throat> um, so like I, uh, it's interesting because. Um, I was talking to someone last night and they were saying that they thought some of the, uh, you know, there's this like alcoholism plot line. And they were like, I don't know that the show can support this like kind of darker, uh, more serious thing that it's trying to do, you know. And I was like, I disagree in that. I think because the show sets a like fizzy adventure tone from the start, the the way that they're doing that plot line I'm not holding it to the same standard I would if it were a show that was just about that, if that makes Hmm. any sense. yeah. Um, So, yeah. So it's been a really, really fun watch. And it's been fun to watch, you know, like... Our colleague, Chris Rosen, who talked to Kaylee, is the first person I knew who was watching it. And then Hillary was like, actually, Chris is right. This is very good. (laughs) Chris Rosen (laughs) famously wrong. Got it right (laughs) this time. (laughs) And so so Richard and I, like, very quickly were like, well, let's just do some still watching about it. Um, And it feels like uh, we were like kind of early to it's been really fun to watch it catch on i guess is the point um yeah i want so. it to be
0: more i want it to be as big as the queen's gambit and i feel like that hasn't happened i don't know if that's just because not as many people have hbo max but i think that it deserves like as many as much attention as uh as that show has gotten especially in like its long tail
1: i mean i, I feel like there's time though i mean who knows like netflix always comes up with something over the holidays that like everyone loses their minds for like the um bridgerton uh, the, get hyped I guess Bridgerton, yeah, that might be it. Um, but I do feel like The Flight Attendant has time. Like, when it's all on HBO Max, everyone figures out they have HBO Max, um,
4: then it can kind of grow from there. The Queen's Gambit, I would say, felt like a little bit more prestige than The Flight Attendant. But I just, like, I really... Oh, for sure. Yeah, just The, the had... Flight Attendant is
0: not prestige Like, the serious yeah. stuff does kind of sneak up on you, but even that is, I mean, it's it's a
4: part of it. Most of The Flight Attendant is just, like,
0: fun, ridiculous balls. It's pulse.
4: just really fun. And Kaylee is great, uh, she's fantastic. And, uh, I will say, uh, without spoiling anything for the finale, that it does leave the door open for, like, I was curious if it was going to be one of those, could we do more flight attendant after this? Uh, and it is. So I think that will be welcome I news for me. <laughs> oh
1: yeah? You think, I, it, you think that should end it?
0: I think they should end it. Let's just end it and just find another airport book and adapt that instead with the same cast. Like, take the American Horror Story approach or something. This story Love is done, that. like... But love I love that. this cast a lot, and I think that if we got them together to do God, I read so many of these books, and <laughs> <laughs> I can rattle off
1: like ten that they could try next. Uh, I like the American Horror Story model. Does feel like more cast should should do that? So I think you're on to something here. Um, well, then let's listen to Chris Rosen talk to the flight attendant star Kaylee Cuoco.
5: Okay, welcome back to Little Gold Men. I'm Christopher Rosen, a contributing writer for Vanity Fair, and I'm joined by Kelly Cuoco, the star of Flight Attendant. Hi, Kaylee, how are you?
2: Hello, thank you for having me. I'm great.
5: Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to speak to you. This is the, this week, uh, the season finale or of, of Flight Attendant uh, debuts on HBO Max on Thursday, so uh, lots of stuff happened in the last few episodes, but I wanted to talk to you first. You know, one of the things I think that's been really fun about this show is you know, when we first, we you and I spoke before the season started and there was like a good amount of buzz around the show. Um, but like, as I've, you know, as the show has aired, the response to the show has been really good. I think it's been building a lot of buzz and especially around your performance. I think a lot of the reviews have been really strong. Um, people seem to be really, you know, uh, enthralled by your performance and like, you know, very positive about it. I guess first, uh, you know, you've obviously been done so much uh, in your career on Big Bang Theory and all these different projects. Um, I guess getting this kind of response to this show and this role for you, I guess, how has that been so far for you?
2: You know, I got to tell you, I obviously coming off of Big Bang and I did feel like I uh, naturally people were going to wonder what I was going to do next. Right. And I mean, I realized the other day that I've been in this business for three decades. Crazy. (laughs) So I learned enough to know that not everyone loves you and probably for every person that likes you, probably there's like twenty that hate you. So my in me saying that, I I knew whatever my next choice was gonna be, it was gonna be pretty harshly judged. You know, it's like whatever I did, they would have wanted the other, or you know, it wouldn't have really mattered what my decision was. So, and I knew because Big Bang was so specific and so loved and so special, I didn't I wasn't gonna try and compare anything to it. So I say that because I've been so in shock for the past month with how how welcoming and the response has been so warm to the show and to what I did with the character. Um, I can't even tell you every time someone sends me something new or something really nice, an article said, or a critic or a fan um, who really just have really loved it. And weirdly, I think, I don't want to say the pandemic helped us. That's kind of, I don't I want to say that, but I feel like the timing worked for our show. I think people were in the mood for something a little bit Quirky and a little fun and a little lighthearted, um, and I just think it kind of worked out. And so I'm just, I'm really, I mean it when I say I'm in shock
5: that people like it. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> but they sorry. really do though. <laughs> no, it's good. I guess. Let me ask you this: like, I know this was the first uh, project you optioned for your production company, yes, Norman. Which you know, obviously, I know this was, that was a big deal. What was it about playing Cassie specifically, if, or like anything specific in that that you were like really drawn to? I guess because she is such a great character. I think it does have like hallmarks of some of your previous stuff, but you definitely do a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of more stuff that you're doing as well. So I guess what was it that drew you to her, you know, specifically?
2: Yeah, I think that... You know, when I read the book, obviously the book was great, but what I really loved was her. And I. She, the book, she went, I mean, it was psychotic, the amount of motion, emotions and feelings and highs and lows. And I thought, whoa, like this is an actress's dream, right? Like to be able to play someone like this. And who knows if I was ever going to get that opportunity. So I'm like, I'm getting the rights to this book. Let's launch the company. Let's go. Big Bang is probably on its way out, even though in my mind, I thought it would last for like 30 years. So I had to start preparing for when it wouldn't be on the the air anymore. Um, and also finding a team of obviously producers, but writers who wh- they spent a significant amount of time with me, including like our showrunners. As you can see, it's my voice. And I couldn't help bring a little of my, what I do, whatever it is that I do into Cassie to make her who she was and to keep her real and to hopefully keep her loved because it's hard to love a character that continues to make some rough decisions and, and you just watch her going downhill. So trying to keep her lovable, but it was, it was an actor's dream. I mean, I got to be my funny self. I got to cry. I got to scream. I got to kiss boys. I got, I mean, I, I got to do everything all with really great hair. And it really just <laughs> worked out great for me.
5: <laughs> I, I will say uh, anecdotally, I saw somebody on Twitter just today be like, wow, my 2021 goal is to get uh, Kelly Cuoco's hair from the flight attendant. So you're not wrong about the gray hair. I think people really did enjoy the hairstyling.
2: Yes, we were, vi- that was very thought out. Okay. I wanted her hair to be amazing but realistic so it, it, it always had some sort of interesting look about it and kind of wild like she could have done it while she was drunk or she could have had it done. You never were quite sure um, but I did enjoy yeah. that side of it.
5: Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think is interesting, and you mentioned like having, you know, playing the character, like have, having a lot of the things that I think you're really good at, like the the comedy and, and the pacing and stuff like we've talked about too. But the thing I love about, especially the later episodes, I think, uh, you know, up through seven has been seen so far. Um, is how you the real the depths of emotion you go, especially with like as Cassie's uh, family backstory has been revealed, and I really enjoy. I, I think though, not it's weird to say, I really enjoyed those scenes, but I think you're really great in those like emotional Thank scenes, you. especially as you're like revisiting, uh, you know, the trauma that Cassie had as a child and stuff. And I guess you know, like, can you talk a little maybe about like. It's almost like you Trojan horsed a lot of those emotions into the back half of the season because, in the beginning, like you said, you're watching her and it's kind of like, Well, wow, I really like this character, but she's making so many terrible choices and so many bad decisions. And then by the end, you're like, Oh, wow, this is like, you know, you, you're you really kind of like feeling for her in a different way, maybe perhaps, you know, and yeah. like reacting to her in, in a different way. And I think that's really great.
2: Yeah, I was excited for people. I, that's why I really hope, you know, it's hard. You, the first few episodes, maybe people veer off. And I was so hoping they'd watch to the end because that's when I kind of got to do a little more of the, you know, the meatier stuff and the more emotional stuff and not just the kind of funny, quirky, you know, wide eyed what's going on. Um, it's funny too, we, we, you know, I'm not much of a, this is going to sound bad, I'm not much of a preparer. <laughs> so as where maybe another actor would maybe like really be, I'm a little more in the moment. Um, and so a lot of those scenes, in fact, the scene that I <laughs> so I shouldn't even be laughing, the scene where I'm on the floor with Alex crying about admitting to what happened to my dad. Um, I didn't even know we were shooting that that day or in that moment. And I looked at this. I looked at the schedule. I'm like, what are we shooting? Because I never would look. I never I'd never know who was shooting that day. I never I'm like, oh, this is like this is like a big scene. Oh, shit. Um, and so I just sat down and I just, and everyone got really quiet. And I, I just looked around and I just, I probably from nerves of not knowing what I was doing, I just started bawling. <laughs> I was like crying. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're in the right mode. Okay. Get, and it just started happening for me. But I think it, I'm not an overthinker like that, which is kind of just who I am. Um, so a lot of that stuff kind of came from, I guess, in the moment from my heart.
5: Right, you mentioned uh, like that stuff too. I wanted, to, obviously, you're a producer on the show, and I know we talked when we talked previously. We talked about how uh, you were involved in a, almost every facet of like the production and stuff. And with the casting, I guess I wanted to talk to you about how you cast or what you were looking for in the family for you. So like, Tr Knight plays your adult brother in in the show, and then you have uh, Audrey Grace Marshall playing a young version of Cassie. In the show as well I guess what were you looking for To like cast like your family In this case I guess I just I found that interesting And I think Audrey especially Is like really good as you And it's it's weird she But is. it's like really good You know what I mean Like it's like It's weird to see that And like I not, no, I've not seen the finale No spoilers But I, you obviously revisit that uh, You know yeah. her flashback uh, You know those memories Again in the finale And it's like really pays off So I guess like casting her And finding you know Her and TR I guess To create that family dynamic
2: Yeah so it's interesting I've never been part Of a casting Process before, like I obviously was with this, and when first of all seeing Audrey without even watching her act, obviously she could definitely play young me. Like she looked like me, and she was a very. It just I was like, oh my god, I hope this girl is as good as she look because this is really great, and she was so good and so real. And I even remember when we were shooting because I was obviously there the entire time, even for her stuff, and. I would go whisper in her ear, like we made sure her hair was kind of similar. How Cassie's was even as an old, as an adult, and I'd be like, you know, she kind of she does kind of this, and she does this with her laugh. And and Audrey would ask me those things, like, "Is there anything?" I'm like, "Just be who you are," because she really is a great little actress. I loved working with her. She reminded me not to say that I was a good actress at that age, but just being on being that age at, at working, like that was me. I even told her mom, "I'm like this reminds me of me and my mom." being on sets, like, and now I'm that older actress that she's working with, like, I used to be her, I used to be, like, the kid, you know, running around on set, like, with my mom, so that was kind of wild for me to see, but she was, she was wonderful, and then with Theo, or with the character of Davey, you know, he, as you now know, it is such a heartbreaking character, I mean, the trauma that he has faced and lived with and with, with our parents is just devastating, the things that he said to Davy, and it just really changed the course of his life, and I, we had to find someone who really broke your heart, and I'll never forget, I was um, waiting, I was at dinner, pre-COVID, at dinner waiting for my guests, I was the first one there, and I thought, oh, I'll just watch some casting tapes, which is, this was my obsession, by the way, I, we watch, I watched so many and I saw that TR, Theo, sent a, sent a tape in for Davy. I was like, wow, and I'm just, and I turn it on and I'm sitting at the table and I'm watching and I, I, I just start bawling. And I said, this, it, it was the most, the sweetest. You could see his pain through his self tape. And the funny thing was he had sent it in. So of course, all the producers in their own time would watch. But within the 10 minutes, I start getting texts. Did anyone watch TR Knight? Did you see his tape? I mean, boom, boom, and I just wrote in capital letters because we were on a group text. I said, "That's my brother," and that was it. There was nobody else. I don't think we even sent another tape to the network, and they also fell in love with him and just to the studio. He just, when you know, you know, like, stop looking. That was it right there. And oh, I am so glad that we we cast him. He was just perfect.
5: Yeah, I mean, the cast, I think the casting is great because I think you have a lot of, like, you know, down the line, like, we, we had talked previously about, like, Zoja Mamet as your friend. And I know you said, like, you guys didn't even know each other and you had this great chemistry right off the bat. And, like, you know, Rosie Perez, obviously, I think, you know, they're all, and you have, like, they're all, it's such a good ensemble because they're, not in it a ton, right? Like, you know, you have like maybe like a few scenes with with Rosie or, you know, like, right. you, know, or, you know, TR obviously pops in and out. And and like, they're really creating these characters and doing such a great job. Uh, like, imme- it's just like immediate, right? And it's like really, I think having that caliber of cast really helps too because you're automatically like, I'm in on this Uh, because, you know, TR and I, I know him, I know his work previously and he's so good and like, you know, that, that kind of stuff I think really pays off. And that was one of the things too interesting that I really enjoy about the show from talking to you previously and also, uh, Steve, the showrunner, um, you guys both seem to really like TV. Like it's a show made by people who seemingly watch and like TV. And I find that, uh, really compelling. I think it comes across because you guys seemingly, you know, uh, you're making a show like that you would want to watch, I would guess. Is that, would For you say sure. that's fair, that, that assessment, absolutely. I guess? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I <laughs> yeah. think
2: that I, yeah. I absolutely love TV. I love reality TV. I love T I love TV shows. I love movies. I love all of it. I mean, it's like, I would think it would be a chef likes food, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of who you are and what you do. Um, And I, I think too, which, which yes, absolutely helps that. I feel like as an actor too, I know what people, I know what I want to watch. And that came into play a lot with shooting this show because I remember saying so many times, guys, I wanted pace. Like, I don't like to get bored and I don't want my audience to get bored. So that was a big thing of like keeping the pace and I wanted to find actors that could keep up with me because I am very quick, sometimes too quick, sometimes you have to reel me back in. But it comes from sitcom of having to really be on your toes, what they were gonna throw at you. Um, They were gonna write, rewrite all your stuff, you know, in front of an audience. It's like, I was really on my feet, ready on my feet. And so to find someone like a Rosie Perez, which by the way, I have to give thanks to John Papsidera, our casting director, because he's the one that said, I'll never forget it. We were all together. He goes, how about Rosie Perez for Megan? I was like, uh-huh. like, I, I, I did not even cross my mind. I said, that is freaking brilliant. And then I had to beg her to do it, which was the best. Um, and <laughs> She's so happy she did. I love her <laughs> so much. But she goes, we met at a little coffee shop in Queens. And I walk in, she's like way at the back of the restaurant. And this She loves hats. She had this low hat on. I was like literally shitting my pants. And I walk in, I'm like, I don't know how, like how am I gonna do this? And we talked, we had this amazing talk and I'm like, come on, you gotta do the show. She's like, I don't know. Because at the time we couldn't give her any info. Like it killed me. She's like, well, where does the character go? I'm like, don't really know. Haven't really written it. I mean, we had the book of course, but she wanted more detail. I'm like, there's not much I can tell you. You just got to trust me. I'm going to take care of you. And I kept telling her, I'm going to take care of you. You are this person. You are this woman. She goes, the, um, the thing is, I don't like to fly. And I was like, well, this is a show about flight <laughs> attendants. So, okay, another mountain to climb. How do I, okay, should I tell her it's about a boat captain? How am I going to get this woman in my show? <laughs> um. So I just kept, I just kept sweet-talking her. I was like... I promise I'm gonna take care of you. We're gonna have a blast. She goes, okay, and we really did. She ended up being, I think she's the magical charm in the show. She's just absolutely wonderful. But people are talking about my performance in this show. I'd be nothing without this cast around me. I would not even know what I was doing. They were so on my level and probably above me and lifted me every single day
5: yeah no, well you mentioned Rosie another thing I really like about that and the Meg Megan Cassie relationship too is that their age difference it comes into play a little bit in in the finale and not to, not won't spoil anything but um, I just love their relationship because it's not necessarily one I've necessarily seen on TV before. you know what I mean that kind of like that specific yeah. you know that age of a woman with your character's age of a woman it's you know it's and it's not like their mentor mentee, their friends and colleagues, but it is, I, I like that dynamic Unexpected. a lot. I think it really plays off and having her in that role. Yeah. And having her in that role is, um, you know, it's just really great. She does a, she does a great job.
2: Yeah, no, I think it works too because yes, they are very good friends. They've traveled the world together. They work together. But Megan looks like there's a jealousy there—a a love-covered jealousy—that she wants to have Cassie's mm-hmm. life. Like she she idolizes her Cass. She thinks Cassie, you know, has it all, and um, it it you know she's a housewife and she's a this and her kid is kind of like doesn't really pay attention to her. And, um, it it the relationship I find very very interesting, and um, yeah, I just thought it was a great match.
5: So we don't obviously the finale is this week. Um, I know when we spoke previously, you we were like excited about maybe the possibility of a second season. I will say again, no spoilers. It definitely could lend itself to a second season for sure based on, uh, you know, how the, the finale shakes out. I guess like, you know, what are any update on that or any any kind of like, you know, and where where whatever kind of conversations have you had about maybe continuing this for another season, I guess
2: we're definitely having conversations about what a second season would look like in case we get that call after our finale next week. Uh, you know, nothing's ever for sure, but the way I look at it is the finale, if we don't get a second season, then it's like, yeah, it was a limited series. And if we do, then we were like, yeah, we meant to have a second season all along. We kind of (laughs) just, we, we, I think we played it, we played it right. So I'm hoping for one, we'll have to see how the audience reacts to the finale. Um, but I, I think that now we don't have the book to have to kind of um, write to and, and make sure that we, we do what the book said. So now we can kind of, we do our own story on this character and maybe where she goes from here and what she's learned and obviously dealing with alcoholism and um, still trying to maintain this, this other lifestyle. So I think, that, I think that we earned it. I think people really love it. Like I said, I'm honestly shocked but I'm thrilled, and um, I hope we get the chance. I would be more than happy to spend another season playing her.
5: Have you been, like, tossing around, like, in your group texts and stuff, like, ideas? Or, like, have you, based on, like, responses from fans, like you said, like, have there been certain things where you're like, oh, maybe if we did a second season, we could actually play this up more or, you know, like, do different. Like, not that you're going to, like, go off what fans suggest, but I just mean, like, you know, kind of, like, how is that guided your just enthusiastic conversations about it, like with your the most of the let's yeah.
2: Say. Most of the conversation for me personally have been between me and Zasha. I mean, I think we we send each other ten voice texts a day, like. Uh, okay, next season, where are we going to be? Okay, what are these characters doing? Oh my god, are they it, what's like we the two of us have built our whole second season of just it's the Cassie Annie show apparently and we're just like off and do you know, but then you remember all these other characters. It's like Megan has some interesting stuff going on and Annie has is in deep shit with her work and like I feel like there's a lot of fun yeah. and all the fun flight attendants on the like all her friends on the plane, like that's some hilarious fun stuff. Plus, I feel like even though Cassie was kind of falling in love with Alex or she really wanted that, she, that was her dream of who would be this perfect man. She never got a true love story. Um, and I would love to see what that looks like for her, you know, especially in an age of her trying to be an AA and trying to um, change her lifestyle, whatever that looks like, like she still has things, you know, a, a life change does not happen overnight. This is, it would be a lifestyle. And I would imagine it would not be easy for her.
5: Yeah, for sure. I think it, there's a lot of good stuff. And I guess last thing, like, what would you say, you know, to tease the finale, obviously, like, you know, give, like, what would you, to, what would you say is like a tease to get, you know, people excited for the finale, let's say?
2: You know, I do think it answers a lot of questions. I think, you know, a lot of it, questions obviously got answered in seven, but we answer a little bit more. It's not tied up in a perfect bow, but the bow is nice enough. It's not in a knot. It's nice enough. Um, and I hope you love it. There's some really sweet moments in it, too. I think, like I said, I was able to play so many different things. And this is just it. What's weird is that I feel like I've been shooting this for 17 years and now it's done. Now it's done. And it's so bizarre to me. I'm like, oh, my God. So this is it. The last episode. I think it's a really wonderful episode and um, it's very special in a bunch of different ways. And I just hope everybody loves it as much as I love shooting it.
5: Yeah, and, and you mentioned like you mentioned that, like, you guys took, had a break, I think, before this episode, right, before the coronavirus, and then went back, uh, like, when you were safely able to do so and kind of, like, do a, a decent amount for the last episode. Is that right? Uh, I think yeah. that was what Steve had told me. but um, Yeah, that's we right. shut Let down.
2: Yeah, no, it is. We shut down with everybody else, and then we went back. We just went back a few months ago. We finished before Thanksgiving. But it was interesting <laughs> when, we, when we came back to shoot, obviously our locations changed and our, our crew was much smaller. When we were shooting out on outside in Queens and there were, you know we're supposed to be shooting in the winter and obviously no COVID, right? So be, we'd be watching dailies and like every right. once in a while you'd <laughs> see someone walk by in shorts and a mask, but like our extras are in like, we're, we're trying to pretend like it's winter and we're like, oh my God, that person's in a mask. Or like, honestly we would forget and there were signs in the background, like masks, sold here. I'm like, no, that's not this episode. We can't have that side here. <laughs> <We're> de- <laughs> um, so it was a little bit of a challenge, but I think that we, I think it worked okay
5: yeah as, as a viewer I can confirm you can't tell that it was not shot uh, right? you know what I mean like the the magic of television comes through you cannot tell no at you all, cannot at all. Tell. Uh, it Looks, and you're all in, again you're in the real locations and stuff so it's really good exactly. anyway Kaylee thank you so much for doing this I really appreciate it I'm a big thank fan of the show you. and uh, you know your performance is great like we said so thank you again and uh, thanks for hopping on
2: well you've been super supportive of the show and I really appreciate it thank you that
1: does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week as we head into the holiday season. We're not going dark, so stick with us. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can um, read reviews and pieces about all of the things that we've talked about. And Richard's review of Wonder Woman will be up by the time that you hear this. So read that, too. Um, you can find us on Twitter, at LittleGoldMan, and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Joanna. Joe wrote this And Hillary. Hillibuster. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best holiday greeting goes to Smokey Robinson.
4: Happy Chanukah!
2: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q and A.